Good evening. Um, yeah, I was asked to comment on whether we, especially the leading policymakers, the main financial institutions and leading economies have learned the right lessons from the financial crisis of 2008. And uh, you know, I can bore you with what I think of this or that measure of financial reform or lack of it, or this or that macroeconomic policy. But I have only 10 minutes, so I'm going to take a completely different tack. So what I'm going to start with is the observation that what is amazing, amazingly unique, uh, if you like, about the 2008 financial crisis is that it happened despite the absolute certainty with which the leading economists and top policymakers declared this impossibility. So Robert Lucas, the famous uh, free market economist from University of Chicago, and the winner of the 1995 Nobel Prize in Economics, in his 2003 American Economic Association presidential uh, lecture, declared that the problem, I'm, I'm quoting him, the problem of depression prevention has been solved. In June 2005, Alan Greenspan, the longtime governor of the American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve Board, who was in his time revered as the maestro by uh, an author no less than, uh, uh, I uh, momentarily forget his name, but one of the, the key reporters uh, of the Nixon's Watergate uh, uh, scandal, Greenspan told the U.S. Congress in June of 2005 that, yes, there might be some froth in some local housing markets here and there, but there's no national housing bubble. A few months later, Ben Bernanke, the then chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to the U.S. President, and later Greenspan's successor as the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, told the U.S. Congress that the 25% increase in home prices in the previous two years, and I'm quoting him, largely reflected strong economic fundamentals, yeah? despite the fact that the economy in the previous two years grew about 7% and house prices that, uh, went up by 25%. Yeah? And that came not at the beginning of an upturn after another few years of house price inflation. Indeed, uh, Ben Bernanke, when he was the uh, professor of uh, Princeton University and a member of the Federal Reserve Board, made a great contribution in popularizing the notion of great moderation. So he was one of the people who declared that now we have uh, reached this uh, state of nirvana. So that robust growth, low inflation, financial stability, we cracked it. You know, I can rattle off uh, a few more, you know, I mean, the, uh, the chief economists of uh, 
uh, AIG, the American insurance company that whose uh, that collapse that almost brought down the American financial system, you know, six months before the, the bankruptcy of this company, very confidently declared that uh, in, I think at uh, one of the hearings in the U.S. Congress, although I could be wrong on that account, he declared that uh, there's no chance that, uh, that the financial product we sell will go wrong. Yeah? Zero chance, he said. Yeah? Unfortunately, these and other people who said similar things about the impossibility of financial bubble and crisis are still largely in charge. Yeah? No, this is extraordinary. Just imagine if all the leading medical scientists and physicians came out telling you that we have conquered cancer. Eh? Some people might think they have cancer, but they actually don't. Eh? <laughs> There's that, 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 no possibility that, that there'll be any more cancer. Eh? And then a few years uh, later, there's a major cancer epidemic. The whole profession would have been shut down. Eh? I mean, they'll be lucky if uh, that, that, that people didn't hunt them down and uh, hang and quarter them. Yeah? <laughs> but somehow, economists uh, have uh, been, the, and, and uh, these uh, leading financiers and policymakers have been immune to that problem. And I say that this is because those who benefit from the current economic arrangement, commonly known as neoliberalism, and those who provide intellectual justifications for it are using all the power they have, financial, political, and intellectual, in order to defend it. Yeah? Of course, when you say that, they say, yes, uh, we know that the systems are perfect, but there's no alternative. You know, the, the look at the Soviet Union. I mean, it uh, collapsed. Yeah? There's no alternative to capitalism. Yeah? There's a very the, the, the disingenuous uh, the slate of hand here, because, you know, <coughs> I don't know about other people, but you know, I have been known to say that capitalism is uh, the worst economic system except for all the others. Eh? So, uh, you know, we can make reforms without, you know, trying to uh, bring socialism. No, I mean, that there are actually many different ways in which uh, capitalism can be run. Eh? I mean, even today, there's a, a huge difference between, say, Swedish capitalism and American capitalism. Uh, between French capitalism and Japanese capitalism. There are many different ways of uh, the running the economy. And if uh, someone tells you that the neoliberal model that have, has uh, that, uh, dominated at least the UK, the US, Australia, and New Zealand uh, in the last uh, few decades is the only way to run capitalism, then this person really needs to go to a doctor and uh, have his uh, head examined. Yeah? And many of the necessary reforms are not even that difficult to make. Take the case of tax havens. This is one of the easiest things to get rid of. If 20 leading economists declare that from tomorrow, any financial transaction involving any of these designated tax havens will not get legal protection, they'll disappear like that. They're not the Andes Mountains, you know, they are not the Pacific Ocean. You know, they exist only because powerful countries, or more accurately, powerful people in those countries want them to exist. Yeah, yeah and uh, when you say these things, uh, that people 
come back and say, oh, but how about those poor people that, that, that in that, those uh, tax haven countries? Yeah? I mean, they lose their livelihood. Yeah? Well, if you are that worried about them, go give them more foreign aid. You know? So a lot of uh, reforms that can be, I mean, there are some things that are indeed difficult to uh, reform. Yeah? But even the easiest things are not uh, being uh, done because basically people who have the uh, ability to make decisions don't want them to happen. Eh? Well, finally, you know, I'm not, once again, that, that, uh, I don't want to uh, give the impression that I'm somehow you know, anti-capitalist. No, I mean, I think it's uh, still the best system that we have. But the reason why I want it to be regulated properly is because it's uh, such a powerful system. No, just think about it. Which country had traffic rules, traffic lights, yeah? uh, the speed cameras, and uh, the car seat, uh, the seat belts, and uh, the airbags when everyone was either walking or at most riding on a horse? Hmm? No countries did because, you know, okay, the, the accidents did happen in those days, but uh, their consequences are not that horrible. Yeah? Today, we have all these things exactly because we have cars that has up to 1,000 horsepower, cars that can do 150, 200, 250 kilometers, yeah? three, four, five times uh, the speed of horse. Yeah? And that's uh, exactly why we need that uh, better regulation. And I think uh, I'll uh, have uh, run out of my time and uh, I'll uh, stop here. Thank you. I'm Kamal. Uh, two things you should know about me. One, I come bearing slides. I don't know if it's, uh, if it's because I'm from a business school and don't know how else to present, uh, or, or uh, I'll just like pictures. And the other thing is that uh, just before this uh, panel started, somehow my ears got completely blocked, so I can't hear myself. Can you hear me? Okay, all right, that's, that's great. Because last time I asked this question in, in my class, which is a large sort of auditorium that we have at the business school, uh, one guy raised his hand and he said, uh, I asked him, you know, I mean, so can you all hear me? He said, I can hear you perfectly well, but I'm very willing to swap seats with somebody who cannot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we have to, you know, put up with. Um, okay, so Hajun has, Hajun has kind of, you know, touched upon uh, the financial crisis, right? Um, I'm going to broaden the discussion a little bit. Because since then, unfortunately, we've had a few other crises. Uh, one of them is, I don't know, I mean, this is Cambridge, so about 80% of you uh, theoretically should think that Brexit is a crisis. Uh, perhaps not all, but um, so we should also you know, consider that. Um, there's a crisis waiting to happen in the United States. Uh, in fact, there was Michael Moore uh, on television the other day who was predicting a Trump victory. So what does the, all this mean? Right? It is somehow related to the financial crisis. Uh, because as my next slide will show you, it appears right, 
that too many people around the world are waking up on the wrong side of capitalism. Uh, and yet, as Hajun said, um, there are not enough sufficient changes that uh, are being run through to do anything or to deal uh, with all that. Um, so here is, you know, this is from the pages of The Economist, right? um, which, of course, you know, is completely neutral as far as free markets are concerned. Um, so this, you know, they have actually termed uh, Brexit as a protest vote, as, uh, you know, an outpouring of fury against establishment. Um, rise of the Donald. Um, so this is, this is actually I got from a, an influential Chinese newspaper which has been translated uh, in the United States where once again they are saying that you know, this is a protest vote that is waiting to happen because these people have been subjected to unemployment, uh, suffered low wages, stressful lives, seen the gap between the rich and the poor grow, and so on. And then we, of course, we have Teresa May now who's talking about government intervention. And she's saying because we want to be a country that works for everyone and not just the privileged few. So we are not going to leave, leave all this to markets. We're actually going to intervene where there is need, right? I mean, who thought this would be coming from uh, the Conservative Party? So there is something afoot. There is something that is going on. What's economics got to do with all this? I think this is, I've borrowed this from the cover of The Economist, who I think come up with the best covers. And uh, this is a recent cover, I think October um, 21st. And uh, so they are saying, you know, I mean, this is a picture of the Occupy movement or anti-globalization protest and why they are wrong and these are arguments for sort of you know in defense of uh, globalization and generally they are based on you know a couple of things that economics is a science um, evidence that markets have led to uh, growth and prosperity which of course they have as Hajun also uh, pointed out and then of course you know there's also systematic discrediting of all non-market based. Uh, now, in economics, what I'll try to do is I'll try to point out in the limited time that I have just a couple of more fundamental issues. I mean, some of the issues were raised by Hajun, but some, you know, a couple of fundamental issues which I think we need to think about. And then you can do what you like, you know, sort of with those, but I, I, I'm just going to raise those issues uh, here. Um, as far as, you know, I mean, I don't want to sort of uh, uh, spend too much time on why, you know, sort of economics, um, wherever you go, public policy makers dominated by economic, uh, economists, uh, it is sort of considered the most scientific of all uh, social sciences and so on. And where you show moral concern, it's kind of, you know, the implication is this is unscientific. Losses or gains are generally measured on the same scale. Uh, generally, if you read economics articles, there's hardly any citations from other social sciences, okay? as if they are studying a completely different world from what the economists are, uh, are studying. Um, there are also, of course, you know, some unrealistic assumptions. When Milton Friedman was asked this question, his answer was that it doesn't matter how unrealistic your assumptions are. What matters is the predictive power of the theory. And then we had the financial crisis, of course. Okay? Um, now, one of the most important slides that I have for you is this one. These are treadmills. And what I want to use this slide to sort of raise are two points. One is about efficiency and the other is about growth. Now, the economy is essentially firms out there that are producing stuff that we consume. Now, what are the kind of pressures that firms are under? 
So I'll give you a very simple example. There's a firm that is growing at 10%, and there's another firm that is growing at, let's say, 20%. Which firm would you put your money in as an investor? You're going to put, put it in the firm that is growing at 20% because you want your one pound to grow. And in one year, if the stock price rises, um, there is a chance that your money will become one pound 20 rather than one pound 10 in one. So if you put it, if you keep it in the one sort of 10% one, you're going to incur an opportunity cost. Right? So that's a loss. So you're going to put it in the firm that grows at 20, uh, 20%. So what is the firm that is growing at 10% going to do? The only way it can keep your capital in is by growing faster than the other firm. Right? Now, what is fast and what is slow growth rates? You don't determine that. The CEO doesn't determine that. The board doesn't determine that. The market determines that. The market determines that by telling you that we expect you to grow at 15% next quarter. How do you actually get your stock to grow? You have to beat market expectations every single quarter for your stock to move. So these are the treadmills on which these firms find themselves, these managers find themselves. They are under pressure to constantly grow faster and faster. Where is all this growth going to come from? This growth is going to come from, they are going to produce new products, they're going to convince you to buy those products and services, they're going to come up with new ways of actually selling you those products, increasing their profits, and so on and so forth. So that means that there are essentially two ways, there are other ways of course, there are essentially two ways in which they are going to grow your money. Right? Which is through efficiency, they're going to cut costs, they're going to come up with new technologies which are going to make operations more efficient, and through incessant growth. Right? Now both have of course a flip side. Right? In terms of growth, I mean, one of the examples that I have studied quite deeply is microfinance, where financial markets want to grow this. They wanted all these small NG microfinance NGOs to scale up quickly, because we need to grow. And eventually that ended up in all kinds of sort of, you know, a number of suicides among borrowers, microfinance borrowers, and so on and so forth. One of the sort of, you know, um, things that I observed was very interesting, if not tragic, which was that Previously, they used to borrow from each other, these villagers. And now they borrow from a microfinance bank. What's the difference? There are lots of advantages of borrowing from a bank because it's connected to other capital markets, it can lend you more, and so on. Previously, when I returned the loan, the moral obligation remained. The obligation to reciprocate remained. So that process of borrowing actually built social capital. Because so-and-so helped me when I needed the funds. And with a bank, it is completely different. You talk to these uh, women, and they're mostly women who borrow uh, from microfinance banks because they would only lend to women. Um, they feel alone because they have borrowed money and now they're after them. And they have devised all kinds of public humiliation rituals. We also, of course, have environmental degradation, um, uh, it, this is again um, an article from The Economist where they are saying, you know, that if you leave it to the markets, I mean, competition can be self-eliminating, so some firms have become too big, and uh, so the market is not uh, functioning. 
Another point I want to make about the other aspect, which is efficiency. So it's good to be efficient, right? I mean, we all want our children to be efficient and so on and so forth. But this is a picture of people who are raising a barn, right? So somebody's barn, and this is from the Amish people, who were studied by a, an economist at Harvard called Stephen Marley. And he says that, you know, when our barn burns down, what do we do? We call the insurance company, right? which is the most efficient solution because, you know, I mean, they, they compete with other insurance companies, so your premium must be competitive. They call the best barn builder uh, possible, and they come in and build a barn very quickly, right? and which is a very efficient outcome. The Amish don't do that. The Amish actually get together. The community gets together, and collectively they build a barn which is an inefficient way of doing things, if you come to think of it. But there's a difference. And the difference is that in this, one is basically a transaction cost minimizing approach, the one that we use. And theirs is a community building approach. So you achieve the same outcome, but in one, you end up strengthening your community. And that there is something to be done. Uh, to be sort of, you know, said for that. <laughs> now, two pictures. Now, this is, you know, one is, this is from Rana Plaza, the building that, uh, how much time do I have? <coughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, sorry, my ear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is, these are workers, right? I mean, 1,200 workers killed in one hour in Rana Plaza. Why? Is it because you know, the building was not safe to work in? Sure, why were these guys there? The guys, you know, all the inquiries later on showed that these people were perfectly aware that the building was unsafe to work in. Still, they all lined up in the morning to go to work. And of course, this is one small node in the larger global production network of textiles, which is, of course, all about efficiency. Which is about, and when you don't have any knowledge base, not every community, not every country, not every city is like Cambridge where most of the work that goes on is knowledge-based. A lot of these developing countries, they compete only on wages. They compete only on price. And these guys, they're able to be competitive. Bangladesh is able to stay in the textile game because of the low wages, essentially. I mean, of course, they have added value and so on and so forth, but essentially because of wages. And the market puts pressure right, on that in the name of efficiency. The picture below that is of the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm sort of, you know, and in the past sort of uh, 10 years or so, there has been more than 80% increase in food prices. That has led to riots in many countries. That has led to a huge rise, a spike in the food insecure people of the world. Right? One day, you decide that you're going to make a commodity index and you put all the necessary sort of uh, grains and, uh, and cattle and sort of coffee and all these things in that index. Now, you're not going to consume all that, but you buy all that. What does that do to prices? Who lets you do that? It's not the market which is letting them do that. This is not the invisible hand. These are very visible hands, which completely in 1999, they deregulated the number of contracts that you could hold of commodities. And these guys went in, and at one point, Goldman Sachs owned the next five-year global production of wheat. Which, of course, Goldman Sachs has nothing to do with. Right? The same thing happens with other commodities and so on and so forth. It has effects on the real economy. Right? 
Um, when executive wages rise so much faster than the average wage, whose fault is this not the invisible hand? These are again other forces. So which is, which is what sort of leads me to sort of my next point, which is where should we look for a reconsideration of this larger paradigm that we are locked in? We cannot look to the elites because they benefit from this system. Right? They go and they sit in the WTO. Right? They open up markets around the world. They force governments to actually decrease the level of regulation there is. And as far as firms are concerned, I already told you the kind of pressure that firms are under. They're not going to be start behaving any differently tomorrow because for them it's a game of survival. If they don't grow faster than their competitor, they're dead. And I think, and this is with, you know, sort of, uh, with all due respect to my fellow panelists, we cannot look to economists you know, sort of either. And so the solution to me really is more public engagement in this, where people need to actually take control of the resources that they have. People need to sort of, you know, have a greater say in whether it's privatization of the local hospitals or, you know, the local health economy or anything like that. We need to make the whole system more democratic. Great to see you all. Um, those were really fascinating presentations so far, but you've got to realize that we've only just met, uh, just before. We changed the order uh, we were going to speak at, uh, just at the last second, and then oh, actually we did not know what everybody was going to say, because we did not have a pre-call. You know, usually you really you know, struggle uh, to make sure that we're all aligned and we actually uh, say different things. So far we have heard different things, but of course what it means is when you come third, uh, you have to rethink entirely what you were going to say because of what's been said so far. Um, particularly since we have had a bit of an attack on economists. And as you heard from the introduction, I am an economist. I'm one of those Michael Gove experts that you really don't want to be listening to ever again. Uh, the interesting thing is I've done loads of debates about is this the end of the technocratic expert? My experience is that since Brexit, uh, we've actually been in much more demand than we were before because now there's so much uncertainty that people still have to come to somebody to try and sort things out. And there are a few things uh, that are givens, if you like. Yes, we get our forecast wrong. Yes, we didn't predict the, the financial crisis. But I've, I've, we've got an excuse for that, and I'll take you through that in a minute. <laughs> of course, we blame the politicians entirely because <laughs> we generally assume in our models uh, rationality. Yes, of course, things have changed a bit. Now we have a bit of irrational um, assumptions in, in there as well, because the world isn't as simple as that, and uh, the markets don't necessarily always operate efficient, very as efficiently as perhaps some people would like us to do. And yes, people do do funny things. I mean, the consumer is the most unpredictable equation, if, you, if I can possibly you know, just make you an, a bit of an equation, uh, to predict. So it always fails. Uh, in any forecasting I've ever done, whether the consumer suddenly decides to spend more, suddenly decides to save more, they're a bit worried about this, worried about that, uh, it just messes up your, your forecast completely. So, so, so we know that. But there are a few things from economic history, in particular, 
uh, but just observing what's happening, uh, which are really givens. And we've touched a little bit on that. I mean, it's interesting uh, when you look at equality and growth that, uh, and also government intervention. On the equality side, uh, there is really no evidence to tell you that a more equal society grows uh, faster in any sustainable way. There is some evidence that tells you that once the recovery starts from a slowdown, if you are more equal because you're spreading the, the goods in a more even way and because people then go and spend the money they have rather than perhaps invest it in funny ways abroad, you have a more sustained period of growth that follows from that. So we know that this happens and that over a period of time, uh, as Krugman and others have said, if you have an unequal society that stays unequal for too long, then you can have social tensions, people worried about coming and investing in that country, so you suffer in relation to others. So we know that. So obviously we need to be watching this. Uh, but in any moment of observation, you can't tell that an unequal society is necessarily uh, uh, worse off in terms of the growth that it achieves. And after all, uh, if you have people accumulating wealth somewhere, they'll have to invest it. The question really is, do you have the type of government that ensures they invest in the right way? I'm not suggesting a Nissan approach here, by the way. That's the sort of thing we heard today. Uh, but certainly you can have policies that encourage productive investment. We know that. What we also know is that We've just been hearing about this, that a more cooperative society, like uh, the Northern European countries, Scandinavian countries, uh, can actually manage to be more competitive and, and get it all together in a way that encourages perhaps innovation and everyone buys into it. Bit of problem because you could also encourage uh, maybe a bit of corruption because uh, you know you all move in each other's uh, offices all the time and are in each other's pockets, but nevertheless. What it does allow you to do is perhaps be more competitive, innovate, have a new Nokia, or whatever it is uh, that's out there. So, so there are a few things that can shape economic policy, and really what economics should be doing is shaping that policy, is providing some of the reasons why you should do this rather than do something else. Uh, and I was a joint head of the Government Economic Service for quite some time, and we were really pushing that, if you like, evidence-based policy doing proper cost-benefit analysis before any policies were actually put in place. And what, of course, you find is that I'm afraid there are loads of departments, not only here, but of course, which are sort of, we used to call them evidence-free zones. Basically, nobody wanted to hear to listen to evidence. Or, even worse, that instead of having evidence-based policy, you had policy-based evidence. Go and find the evidence that actually <laughs> guarantees that what I want to do is right. And then suddenly, if things change, uh, there is no more money. And somebody has already been telling you that actually <coughs> this policy was no good anyway, you can do it more cheaply in other ways. Then suddenly, they discover the evidence. And ah, it's absolutely amazing. And it's good for the economies that finally they get listened to, but, but that is uh, very rare. Uh, and actually, unlike what was said about uh, economists, and certainly that was the case when I was working for the government, we work with the other disciplines. They're so important. Statisticians. Uh, social researchers, psych psychologists, basically. They do all the service. If you really think that the GDP data that came out today, uh, or you said yesterday, um, was, uh, was just dreamt up by some economists, it wasn't, because there are surveys done, there's interpretation done, and that's done by other disciplines. And that's basically uh, how uh, the whole thing works. Uh, so it would be rather good, actually, if we would listen a little bit more, but we have to be very, very clear about the assumptions we make, and they're not theoretical assumptions. So, for example, the Treasury is being attacked, all my ex-colleagues, 
right now for doing forecast before about what was going to happen to the UK economy, okay? So, um, and the Bank of England, they get attacked. Let's get rid of the Bank of England governor, is what some Brexiters are telling you right this minute. Well, the truth is that you're making those assumptions as a government department or you're doing a, a forecast. You have to assume unchanged government policy. Because if you say, oh, well, but it's going to be fine if he actually reduces, then the pressure for this independent operator to do that is immense. And that's not understood. And yet we are attacked for getting our forecast wrong. And the only reason why, we all know this as economists, we are where we are in terms of growth is because the Bank of England intervened, did the opposite of what people said they would do, lowered interest rates, put lots of, lots of uh, money into the, into the system. We know as economists, we know as policymakers that this works. And I was there before because at the time of the financial crisis that was mentioned earlier, we didn't get it right, but we set up a National Economic Council. I was on the National Economic Council's officials group where we just pumped anything we possibly could, uh, you know, uh, shoved it into the economy, hoping it would work, not knowing exactly how. If you're in uncharted territory, as we are now, you don't actually know what the response is going to be of people. You don't know what confidence we do, will do. You have to make assumptions. You have to listen. You have to send all the other disciplines in to find out what businesses think and then put this all together. So let me just get on to what perhaps another final uh, uh, sort of point is where we have some, some certainty. Um, we know uh, I was a Remainer. Uh, argued a lot about Brexit. 99% of us were Remainers, were economists. As I said, there are circumstances which have uh, actually, thank God, managed to make us continue to, to grow, but who knows what's going to happen. But let's take just one small step back and think about the euro. And one of the reasons, of course, why the Brexiters uh, perhaps won is by saying, look at Europe, it's a complete disaster. And of course it is, to a considerable extent. Uh, there's still a financial crisis. Uh, you know, places like Greece, where I come from, have seen this 25% reduction in, in, in GDP. And actually, just to take the original, original, original point, which was, you know, if we as, as, as uh, doctors, I think as any of us are doctors on here, we as doctors, if we had been that, assume we were doctors, as the economists would say, and we got it all wrong, and suddenly there was an epidemic when we said no, we would indeed be lynched. Um, and, and there we have the IMF and all the people who thought about the euro who are saying it's going to be fantastic in Greece. Don't worry at all. Next year we'll grow a little bit of reform there and everything will be fine. Well, Greece has seen a 25% reduction in its GDP. Okay. I think if this had been here, here, not in Cambridge, but in the UK, I don't think this government would have survived. I mean, the Greeks have been, have found, amazingly, I always thought we were terribly passionate and, and didn't like authority or anything <coughs> like that. We didn't pay our taxes, supposedly. And didn't work hard, whereas actually the figures tell you we're the hardest working nation in Europe because we have five jobs at the same time to be able to survive. Um, and we, this government would not have been there. Probably, you know, they would all have been lynched, uh, a little bit like the example of the doctors. And yet it did not happen. We were told all the time that it's going to be fine, despite the evidence, despite the fact that economists, most economists here in the UK were saying this didn't, did not make sense. But then politics intervenes because the EU was a political, sorry, the euro was a political uh, decision uh, because, of course, we had the unification of Germany and uh, the French didn't want them to be competitive, and etc., etc., etc. So there we were. And of course, it makes sense economically, you free capital movements because you no longer worry about exchange rates. That's how things work. 
But he clearly had problems because he left his countries with an inability to deal with any crisis. That's why there's still a banking crisis in many countries, why they have huge debt-to-GDP ratios, not just in Greece. So before that, and I was still a partner at KPMG before I went across to the government, I had started this service called the Euro Service, which is a bit boring in terms of how it's called. I should, could have been more imaginative. I should have asked the judge business could come up with something really much more much more exciting. But anyway, that was where it was. Here we were in the UK, not doing Europe, I mean, not joining the Euro, but still providing a service on how a big firm could, what it would have to do to survive the new environment. So, so I remember going to a dinner uh, organized by the Association of Corporate Treasurers, European Corporate Treasurers, and, and I gave this after dinner speech and, and actually saying, oh, it's going to be a little bit you know, difficult, uh, you won't be able to devalue any longer, it's going to be problems, uh, the government's going to have to cut back, there may be cuts in wages as a result, because there are all these sort of things that any economist would tell you. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, I sat down to completely stone in silence, which, you know, despite the fact these guys are drunk, normally you get something <laughs> at the end. But this time, it's completely stone in silence, and I sat next to this Portuguese guy, who turned to me and said, very interesting talk, I can't do the Portuguese thing. Very interesting talk. I have to just tell you that in Portugal, there are only two, two economists who think the euro is a bad idea, and one of them is in a mental asylum. <laughs> so, so complete disregard of what the underlying, uh, the underlying truth is. And then, just to prove to them, if you like, that politics intervenes, um, yes, of course, uh, we missed the importance of the financial sector in our models. We've had to redo the models. We're doing them now. I mean, macroeconomics was not won and done, actually, it needs to be reinvented. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. But I do say that, although we assume rationality, as I said, and a bit of irrationality, what we don't assume is that the politicians will be irrational. So the policy response is always a question mark. I do remember, just before Lehman's was let go, too big to fail, you remember? Lehman's was let go, and after that, they didn't let anyone go, really, because the catastrophe was there, waiting to happen. So it was a mistake, anyway. But we were all in some very senior regulator's house, having a party, which we forgot. Uh, and, um, and it was all happening in the States. And we all said, there's no way they're gonna let Lehman's go, because if they do, it's gonna be a financial catastrophe across the world. Well, they did. And here we are, the results are clear for all to see. Thank you very much. the mood of a profession can change. Since Brexit, economists have been pretty pessimistic. But 10 years ago, before the global financial crisis, economists were feeling rather optimistic. Inflation had been tamed, unemployment was low, economic growth was healthy, and the business cycle seemed to be a thing of the past. As Harjun Chang has noted, the Nobel Prize-winning economist and president of the American Economic Association Robert Lucas, had even gone as far as to announce that the Great Depression would never happen again. So when the unthinkable happened in 2008, no one was more shocked than economists themselves. And ever since, economics has been trying to rebuild itself, attempting something of a revolution, including through the Institution for New Economic Thinking, which has a branch here in Cambridge. Whilst rebuilding, 
economists are having to wrestle with two other problems, rising inequality and a slowdown in economic growth, something that economists are terming secular stagnation. Now, on a good day, I'll tell you that a revolution is underway in economics, but on a bad day, I'll tell you that it's still some time off. But even if it is coming, we know that not all revolutions bring about positive results. So if economics is to change for the better and not for the worse, it needs to breathe some fresh air. Economists need to draw on new ideas and new voices. And what I want to say to you this evening is that that must include women. Economics has a serious sex problem. And this is, in my view, one of the prime reasons why it went off piste in the first place. Hence why I've been desperately making a call for a sexual revolution in economics over this last year. The presence of leading ladies such as Janet Yellen at the Fed or Christine Lagarde at the IMF masks a deep underlying problem in economics, one which is apparent in the fact that there has only ever been one female economics Nobel Prize winner. Whether we're looking at policymakers academics or economic students, there are many more men than there are women at the helm of our economy, present and future. In the UK and the US, there are almost three times as many male students studying economics as there are female. And worryingly, here in the UK, the proportion of girls studying for an economics degree has been going down rather than up. Now, whether an economist is male or female shouldn't, in principle, matter. But given that our society has been one in which the male experience is very different to that of the female, how can a subject dominated by men not implicitly and unknowingly provide us with only half the story? While the economy affects everyone, male or female, the questions economists seek to answer, the tools they use to find an answer the assumptions they make along the way, and the economic phenomena that they choose to measure are all partly dictated by the fact that economics is a discipline dominated by men. And I should add that since traditionally rationality has been seen as a male trait and emotion as something rather more female, economists have long taken the attitude that to incorporate real human characteristics into their way of thinking would be to make it less economically rigorous, to make it too soft, too female. Now, while economists like to think of their discipline as being gender neutral, and certainly the economic actors within their models um, are neither male nor female, the reality is that economists have looked at the world around them through largely male eyes, and rather privileged Western male eyes at that. This male experience has traditionally been one of business and of paid work, an experience that leaves family and community to the opposite sex. The interactions between society and the economy are ignored, and the vital role of reproduction, care and nurture, something which is just as important as the reproduction of the capital stock, is downplayed. It's effectively taken for granted. Economists have, as a result, modelled the economy as if it were a pie divided into two simple pieces, the piece for the state and the piece for the market. As a result of dividing this pie into two pieces, any expansion of the state is therefore seen as coming at the cost of the market. 
more pie for the state must mean less pie for the market. And the result has been a war between the state and the market throughout the 20th century, one that's played out in lecture halls, in politics, and in international relations. Only by recognising that that pie can be divided into three pieces that there's a third sphere involving life outside of the market and beyond the whims of the state. Will we stop seeing the state and the market as if they're in a permanent zero-sum game? More state doesn't have to mean less market. So, for example, by supporting women's labour force participation through social and welfare policy, the state can work in support of market activity rather than crowding it out. The bias contained within economist models isn't the only problem. So is economists' interpretation of the past, of what has made the Western economy, including Britain, successful. The story that we're typically told is supposed to be gender, gender neutral, but when you think about it, it's very much a male story. It's very much his story. It's one involving the what were largely male engineers, inventors, industrialists, and scientists of the Industrial Revolution, many of which now have bronze statues which honour them gracing our city centres from Glasgow down to London. History, however, suggests that women's choices about work, fertility and home were just as important as these great men for the rise of the West. The everyday woman, the woman on the street, was just as important as Isaac Newton. So in Britain, in the centuries before the British Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, it was already common for women to go out to work. And strikingly, in stark comparison with poor and emerging economies today, women didn't get married until they were in their mid-twenties. The average age of women at marriage from the 16th century onwards in Britain, 25 or 26 years old. And the result was that British families were small and nuclear, and that meant less downward pressure on wages, incentivizing mechanization and technological development, culminating in the Industrial Revolution. It also meant a greater ability for parents to educate the children that they did have since their families were smaller, and that meant, in a historical context, that they could, for example, afford the odd apprenticeship or two for their children. It also meant spare resources for families to save for the future. With fewer mouths to feed, families could afford to save for the future, and that provided more funds for investment in the economy. So by affecting wages, technology, skills, savings and investment, the everyday woman's choices about work and family sowed the longer-term seeds of modern-day prosperity, and all of this began many centuries ago in the West. But by ignoring the relevance of gender to economic growth, economists have been blinkered to the potential which female empowerment provides to help resolve today's pressing economic problems, including the problems here in the West. Whether it's a slowdown in economic growth, deflation, negative interest rates, flagging productivity performance, stagnant wages, inequality, or political battles about immigration, the problems we currently face are rooted in what I've recently termed for Bloomberg a global sex problem. And this is that a lack of female empowerment in poorer countries has resulted in high fertility rates and rapid population growth over the past century. 
And then with the onset of globalization over the past 30 years, as rich and poor economies have come into greater contact, that excessive population overseas has created significant downward pressure on wage growth here in the West. Rising inequality and a slowdown in economic growth has been the inevitable result, as too has animosity in the West towards foreigners and to the forces of globalization. So whilst many take issue with globalization, and that's of course something that's resulted in an anti-globalization backlash, as can be seen in part in Brexit and in the rise of Donald Trump, I don't think it's globalization that is the key underlying cause of our problems. Instead, it's the lack of freedom for women in poorer countries across the world, including their lack of freedom to take charge of their bodies, to take charge of their fertility. Our economic suffering over here reflects their own sufferings. The excessive population growth abroad resulting from women's lack of freedom hurts wage growth in the West, particularly of the less skilled workers who are competing with the children of these women overseas. This affects inequality and it also, through its effect on wages, lowers the incentive for businesses to mechanise and invest, hurting economic growth. Now, unfortunately, the gender problem in economics has meant that the connection between women's freedom and current-day economic problems has remained unexplored. So take what's perhaps the most respected book on the challenges facing the Western economy. Its title, Secular Stagnation, Facts, Causes and Cures. It's available to download for free from Vox EU, and it's edited by the economists Kuhn Toilings and Richard Baldwin. Not a single one of the 20 or so contributors is female. Gender does not receive a mention. This is the key book attempting to explain the slow growth and related macro problems in the West at the moment. Just now, in fact, just this week, one of those economists involved in that book has begun to think about gender in relation to this problem of slow growth. But the result hasn't been a positive view of women's freedom. It's been a negative one. They're now blaming the slowdown in economic growth and negative interest rates in the West on women's freedom and, in particular, access to the pill. <laughs> so then let's turn away from growth to inequality and let's take Thomas Piketty's famous capital in the 21st century. Gender, again, hardly receives a mention. I only counted it in my own reading once in the main text. So it seems that economists either don't think about gender, or when they do, the result is that women end up taking the blame for the situation that we're currently in. And that is simply not acceptable. And as far as I'm concerned, it's dangerous. We can't take women's freedom for granted. We can't take women's access to birth control for granted. And that's something you see not only in poor countries, but in rich economies like the US. And so this idea that women's freedom is either to be ignored or is to be seen as something bad for the economy is very worrying. The fact is, the fact that, it, that it's not causing more uproar amongst economists and amongst the wider public is a blatant signal, I would say, of the state the economics profession is in. The fact that people within economics can either disregard gender or go down the direction of blaming women. 
So in the process of economics remaking itself, economists need to admit that their discipline has a serious sex problem, one that desperately needs to be addressed if we're to get to grips with the major challenges we face, the slowdown in economic growth, rising inequality, and recurrent financial crises. By ignoring the problem, or by presuming that it's women who need to change, and not the discipline itself, will be destined to repeat past mistakes, and that will hurt everyone, male or female. So we don't just need a revolution in economics, we need a sexual revolution in economics. Thank you. extremely interesting uh, different takes on obviously a huge topic and listening I sort of uh, a necessarily impressionistic set of things that I wrote down um, uh, the title economics on the brink it struck me several times rather forcibly during our uh, panelists uh, talks perhaps should be politics on the brink maybe the problem is more with the polit politicians than the econ economists or you know maybe it's the way that they interact but I did find it interesting what you said in your models you don't assume that the politicians will be irrational I can't imagine why you assume that <laughs> I mean that reminds me rather of the sort of physicist who starts the the description of the problem by saying assume a perfectly spherical human being and that that I that I again thought as you described your uh, your world in which it's homo economicus, you know, and that all, all human beings are men. And yes. you don't even know that you've assumed that. You've, mm. you've, you've got these things moving around in your models and you haven't even noticed what they aren't. Um, so I don't know whether... Um, I, would, I would sort of be interested if my, if my panellists, before we t open to the, the floor, you know, do we, maybe it's a sort of a false binary, but is the problem more inside economics or is the problem elsewhere and are you still willing to defend economics, the discipline that it is now, with you know, some tweaks needed maybe, but it's more about how it interacts with, say, politicians, maybe it's about public understanding, I don't know if it's the way that regulation works and you need to be presenting more forcibly the changes that need to happen. Just a sort of a couple of sentences maybe from each of you, is it more about economics as such? Uh, yes, I would say so. Um, but uh, I, I yeah, actually quite strongly disagree with uh, Ms. Price's defense of economics in that economists have not been innocent bystanders. You know, they are not people sitting outside some observed system and trying to predict it and you know, people do funny things as she put it and uh, you cannot get it right. No, I mean, these people have been actively encouraging and justifying financial deregulation. Mm -hmm. That was at the root of this uh, crisis. So I think that the economists cannot that, that, you know, that claim that, well, that it was not really us, that world is uh, complex, funny, you know, they were part of that world. Eh? Okay, so economics on the brink is still standing as a title for this event. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there is a, there is a theory in, uh, in sociology uh, that was basically came up at uh, Carnegie Mellon University in the 60s. It was called the garbage can theory. And uh, the theory was that most of the time when problems arise in organizations, I mean, these were organizational theorists, Her Herbert Simon, later a Nobel Prize winner, and so on. Um, people don't see them as problems. People see them as opportunities to bring out their favorite solutions mm -hmm. and impose them. Solutions that they have tried to implement for a long time, but haven't really been allowed to. 
so these are solutions chasing problems. Okay? <laughs> um, in fact, there was also a wonderful book, which I would encourage you to read, by a guy called James Ferguson. He's an anthropologist, not an economist. But his PhD thesis at Harvard was the study of a development aid project in a landlocked country in Africa called Lesotho. And he starts off by saying, uh, this is the memo from the World Bank which describes Lesotho's economy on which they basically base that intervention. And here is the actual situation in Lesotho and they don't bear any resemblance. Is it because the people in the bank are stupid? Obviously not. I mean, they've been hired from the top universities of the world and the top graduates in their class and so on and so forth. And, but the solution has been framed in a way which is necessarily apolitical, which is purely economic. So in that way, my mm -hmm. position would be that yes, there is an apolitical color to mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of we see here. Well, what can I say? Um, <laughs> clearly, this is an anti-economist thing. You're going to have to help me. Sorry, you're going to have to stick together. But there is no doubt, as I said, uh, economists actually um, missed quite a lot. Uh, and of course, there are economists, as the Portuguese were telling me, uh, who seem to go down a particular route. Uh, so the, the, the profession is quite divided, I think. We, yeah, there is no doubt about that. And, but of course, there are loads of, loads of economists in the IMF and elsewhere who have done the wrong things, uh, who could not see that the policies were not going to work. And that is because until the Greek situation, uh, until Europe sort of went into free fall and there were all these bailouts, they had never dealt with an advanced economy of the sort of, you may say that Greece is not advanced uh, economy. Uh, it had sort of become that. Um, they had not dealt with big countries and they had never been involved in such huge bailouts. They had no idea what the issues would be. They thought it would be just as simple as, as dealing with an African country or perhaps mm. Argentina, which mm -hmm. was the case before. Mm. Uh, so, so if people don't want to, uh, either don't learn from experience or they, they are convinced, and I think there is a bit of a conviction there, and you're quite right in what you just said, um, that we've done this before and it worked, it has to work there as well, even though the subject matter is quite different and the patient is different. So we've tried it with one patient work, so it has to work for them all. Even though the circumstances are different, then, then you do put the entire uh, economic profession in disrepute. I mean, this is a serious, serious issue with which I entirely agree, and yet, and yet, in defense. Uh, if you look to the financial crisis itself, you say economists believed in deregulation. It's quite interesting you say that, because again, a number of us were involved when we had the Big Bang. As you know, there is a 30th anniversary of the Big Bang. Uh, what actually happened in, in terms of the financial crisis uh, is that it was the US government that decided that it made political sense to enfranchise, if you like, a huge part of the rather poor population by offering them the ability to buy their own houses uh, through mortgages which those guys could not afford and encouraged and deregulated the financial sector to be able to do it. On the back of it, with a bit of deregulation that happened, everyone started buying this, you know, they, then, they then put it all together in bundles and sold them off this mortgage-backed securities, which actually were the reason why the financial crisis happened. Now, there are banks still here being told off and, f and fined huge amounts of money so they could actually go out of business by the US for mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities when it was a completely political decision. Mm -hmm. Now, this was not an economist's paradise. 
this was something that the economists were saying, what are you doing? These people will never be able to pay this thing back. And we, we, we used those completely unserviceable bits of debt and bundled it together and sold it to others, and, and they sold it to others and, 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 and had lots of instruments all around it. Uh, and the whole thing sort of collapsed when it was very obvious, very simple. It was very simple, the financial crisis. It was that those people in the States could not afford to repay the mortgages. I'm going to make you 50-50. <laughs> Economists and Okay, 50-50, I'll take it. <laughs> Victoria. Yes, yeah, so I, I think so. We're, we're talking about whether it's um, politicians or economists that are to blame. And if I can say something in relation to how each of those two groups engages with the public, and I think this brings out an important difference, and that is that economists are very bad at engaging with the public and listening to the public. They have closed ears. Um, economists do need to get out and about a lot more. You know, perhaps economists <laughs> should have local surgeries where they talk to, talk to people from outside, as politicians are, in a sense, forced to do. Economists, of course, not only are they very bad at engaging with the general public, they're also very bad at engaging with other academics. And I know one of the other speakers mentioned before how economists are not very good at um, drawing on the work of non-economists. Um, there was a study recently that showed that political scientists reference economics research six times as much as the other way around. Mm -hmm. and for sociologists, it's an even <laughs> more worrying number. So uh, economists need to do a lot more to open their ears to what's going on outside of their own little faculty. But then when we move to politicians, in a way, I worry that it's the opposite problem. Mm -hmm. Now, you look at Brexit. Politicians have been, some of them at least, have been happy to pander to populism. So I have in mind here certain Conservative Party Brexiteers. Um, <laughs> Boris Johnson. I mean, do we, do we honestly believe that he is pro-Brexit? I was, I was at a talk of his um, a year or so before the referendum where he was talking about ancient Greece. Classics is his background. He was talking about ancient Greece and how the openness of ancient Greece, the way it embraced foreign merchants, um, foreign um, workers, was key to its success and how that should be a model for London. And I guess he would say wider Britain. So I was quite shocked, actually, when he came out pro-Brexit. So we can question, you know, are politicians too happy to pander to populism? Where's their conviction? You know, they, in a, way, in a sense, try and take the popular will for granted, whereas perhaps what they should be trying to do is a little bit more. You know, they should be trying to sell to us a modern cosmopolitan society, showing to us how we shouldn't take things like freedom and diversity for granted, how easily it, it can move backwards as well as forwards. I'm counting you as 50-52 there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take three or four questions together, and then the panellists can choose which ones they'd like to answer. We have two roving mics, if you could just put your hands up. I have two gentlemen here. Would both like to ask a question? And then I'll come over here. Hold that thought, hold that thought, because I'll take a few questions. The last speaker um, spoke about gender um, as something which is being neglected. I'd say this whole discussion, there's been really no talk about the environment. Mm. Um, no 
Thank you. Have I cut another couple of hands up over here? Guy here with the type. How important are national governments, or how unimportant, in dealing with these forces in an interdependent world? That's for anybody who wants to have a go. Okay. One more question, if I have a hand up anywhere. Yeah, I'll go for it this guy here. Okay, so what should we do about <laughs> what should we do about the gender imbalance? Um, would any of you like to comment on environment? What is the role of national governments these days? And Heathrow, is that politics or economics? Okay, so thank you for the question on uh, the gender problem in economics. Um, now, partly, I think we've got ourselves into a vicious circle. So, too few women studying economics. That means that the types of models and the way that economists look at the world becomes very male-centric. That means that economics puts off more women coming into the discipline and we go round in a vicious circle. So what I, what I launched um, last year, and actually with the support of Vicky Fry sat next to me, was a Women in Economics um, initiative here at Cambridge, which is to reach out to sixth form um, girls across the country to bring them to Cambridge for a day to hear more about economics they don't have to be studying economics, and so the idea is to open their eyes really to different ways of looking at economics. And so we are, I am trying to do something at the ground level. Um, with regard to the environment, then this, I do think, naturally is connected to the gender question. Because if we're talking, I've been talking about the problem of overpopulation, excess fertility, women not having the freedom to control their own bodies, the freedom to control their own fertility, then I very much see the environment and climate change as related to the lack of um, freedom in the world. And actually, one of, the, one of the most efficient ways of reducing carbon emissions is birth control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to take the environment question just briefly? Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought I uh, alluded, uh, but obviously, you know, given limited time, because when you talk about growth, uh, you cannot not talk about the environment, because that is the biggest casualty there is of incessant uh, growth. Because at some point, you need to pause and you need to think, um, you want to grow the economy, but to what size? Mm. You want to grow it infinitely? I mean, does it, should it bear any relation to the size of the planet <laughs> where you're trying to grow this economy? Because at the end of the day, you need to uh, think about the throughput, which is the natural resources which are going into the machine. And when did we started, sort of, when did we start referring to nature as natural resources? As if they're all meant for our consumption. Mm. I so think I, th I think it's an extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think national governments and Heathrow maybe yeah. are ex uh, National government governments, but, but of course, it sort of links with, with the environment thing, if I may, because I mean, it's quite interesting because the, uh, the scientists have been talking about the, the, the whole climate change issue for quite some time, but policy was not following that through. And it was really when Nick Stern, an economist, did the climate, uh, the climate change review, his big review, 
uh, we're actually calculating the costs and the benefits and argue that actually, uh, you know, if we don't do something now, the costs are going to be so much greater later, that people actually stood up and took notice. So this is just to prove that economists can be significant occasionally and can <laughs> actually influence policy properly. Um, uh, but, but of course, it is very, very much... And what is happening now, talk about national governments, is that the environmental issue, and Heathrow is, 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 is relevant in this, and of course people may not necessarily believe that that's, that's all happened that way, but in, in the Treasury Green Book, when you, when you uh, do your cost-benefit, your appraisal for a particular project, anything now, there is an environmental aspect to, to which we have to follow. So you look at the cost-benefit there as well before any policies is suggested in relation to any other. So there's been progress. I mean, it's not fantastic, but at least finally we've signed all sorts of agreements and we, we are doing this. And I think that's, that's quite important. And national governments and what, what uh, uh, role they play. I mean, uh, we heard at the beginning about, <coughs> or even Theresa May, you know, finally saying that the state should be really involved. The truth is the state is very heavily involved in absolutely everything. As again, I mentioned Nissan before and look at it again now. If you look at the FTSE 100, uh, the majority of the companies, uh, of the, the largest companies, come under the influence of government, whether it's through procurement, whether it's through regulation, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and there are regulations all around, uh, competition uh, regulations in addition to regulating banks and so on. So, so actually the state is very important in absolutely everything that moves. So the idea that suddenly we re rediscovered the, the benefits of the state is just not true. I mean, we, the state uh, runs a huge part of the economy and hires people to provide the services, like doctors, for example. And of course, it decides on big infrastructure projects, which is exactly the, the, the point that was asked there. The economists would tell you that, that, that airline capacity, increasing it, actually makes sense, in addition, of course, to worrying about the environment. You remember in the coalition government, <coughs> airport capacity expansion <coughs> was part of the climate, energy and climate change bit of the joint coalition agreement. In other words, saying, because of that, it takes precedent that we're not going to touch the airports as well, at all. Now, in terms of economics and, and supposedly linking up with the rest of the world, uh, having, an, uh, having more capacity in the southeast makes sense. Now, in terms of where it is, there was a whole review, so I, can, I can't tell you what the economics are actually telling you, but I would say there's 50-52. There's economics and politics in the decision-making. Would you like to pick up on anything? Yeah, no, uh, very quickly. Well, I have an uh, answer to Victoria's question. Is Boris pro-Brexit, I think he's uh, pro-Boris. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that, uh, criticizing uh, my own profession, I don't want to give the impression that I'm you know, letting the politicians off the hook, you know, I mean, they are equally responsible. But uh, going back to that, uh, your question about the uh, environment, you know, at least uh, in the medium term, you can actually grow in a way that increases environmental sustainability. Yeah? So at the moment, you have uh, the historically low interest rate. It's the lowest since the beginning of capitalism. Why aren't we, I mean, the, the borrowing that money through, say, uh, some sort of uh, public uh, planning and investing it in the green energy? Yeah? Mm -hmm. So that the sad thing is that we are not doing that. Instead, we are fueling another round of uh, consumerism and know, uh, the real estate market bubble. But I mean, that it is uh, possible to grow, but also make the growth uh, more sustainable in the long run. Can I have some more questions? Lady here. <coughs>
I'll take, some more, I'll take several questions at a go. Um, I, have a, I have two hands up over here. Do you want to just pass the microphone on in there? Yep. If you have a question as well, go for it. <laughs> Did you also have a question? I'll try and do one more round of questions after this very briefly, so if we can all keep our answers brief <laughs> to those ones. Merkel. So I did, mention, I did mention in my talk that despite a number of leading ladies at the helm of our economy, I mentioned Janet Yellen, I mentioned Christine Lagarde, um, obviously I am aware of who our Prime Minister is, um, but that doesn't mean, I mean this is token, this is token for women. You know, women are still massively outnumbered across um, politics, not only here in Britain, but more generally across the world. As I said, in economics, three times as many male students as there are female students. And that's, that's at the student level. Go up to the top, to the professor level, and things look a lot worse. So, no, I don't think this is evidence that there isn't a gender gap um, problem in economics or in politics. What I will say, as, um, as someone who has been um, trying to fight, let's call it the feminist cause now, for some years, is that in the process of me doing that, I have found how extremely supportive many men have been and how you cannot assume that every man is anti-woman, but at the same time, you cannot assume that every woman is pro-woman and supportive of the feminist cause and supportive of women's freedom and supportive of the fact that people like me point to um, a problem such as this. So, you know, this, this is a problem that we can all get involved in. Um, I, um, I very much like the UN's He for She campaign, for example. So, yeah. This, it's not this just is about counting. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, who'd like to take automation? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll say something about the uh, artificial intelligence. Um, artificial intelligence technologies, like all other technologies, they embody um, social relationships, they embody certain values. All, all technologies do that. They're based on certain assumptions about who is going to be using them, how they're going to use them, and a lot of women have actually done fantastic work in this area, where they have exposed or explored how various everyday use technologies are basically made with men in mind, okay? uh, starting with the bicycle and, uh, and so on and so forth. And um, in fact, uh, uh, an interesting example of that is when Kodak first uh, came up with color film, it used to capture black people as green. Because in the lab, they had to make a decision in the chemistry of the mm. film. And uh, it could either capture white skin well, 
or black skin well? And guess which way mm. they lean. <laughs> and it wasn't just out of racism, it was economics, yeah. right? Because 90% of the market was white. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so there are, and artificial intelligence, I mean, the biggest <coughs> question it raises for me is whose values is it going to embody, right? And what values is it going to uh, embody? Because it's going to be rolled out around the world. So if you talk about cultural decimation or homogeneity sort of, you know, across the globe, it's only going to be uh, sped up. And of course, then there is the um, uh, sort of specter of rising unemployment because of uh, unemployment, uh, because of artificial intelligence and uh, so on. Yeah, can I just quickly sure. add to that? Yeah. No, uh, you know, new technologies destroy jobs, but they also create jobs. Yeah? Just think about it. In European languages, there are many surnames that are named after profession, yeah? Mm. But how many people who are called weavers are weaving? How many people who are called fletchers are making arrows, yeah? How many people called coopers are making uh, that, uh, the, the barrels, yeah? So, you know, that we have uh, that been able to create these that, that, that new jobs, and I have no doubt that in the long run we will uh, create new jobs, but uh, the point is, uh, like uh, Kamal said, this is uh, not an automatic, purely economic process. I mean, it's a political, social process. So mm -hmm. now that uh, if you are uh, producing more uh, with uh, fewer people, uh, uh, other things, that, 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 that where are we going to redirect uh, those uh, the resources? Are we going to use uh, the, them uh, to create uh, jobs in, say, uh, old Asia people's uh, care sector? Or are we going to just uh, leave these uh, people unemployed? Uh, these are political decisions. These are not technical decisions. So two questions that relate to how politicians and ec economists work together. One is about um, whether politicians push economists into too much, you know, un uh, unjustifiable, un unwarranted certainty. And the other one was, how do, we, do we have the politicians that we deserve? And I think this is related to public, uh, I the public discourse, really, I think, from your question, yes? Do you've worked, again, in government. Well, yes. I mean, I, I work with some amazing politicians, actually, uh, quite in interesting people. And they are really like y you and me, to a considerable extent. Uh, but um, to a considerable extent. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to know which bit was That's different. A, yeah, very <laughs> to a considerable extent. Um, but different, yes, in crucial <laughs> places. Uh, but this certainty thing, I think you, you're, uh, you're quite right to, to raise it. Uh, um, the politicians would like to be able to offer certainty. Uh, but they can't actually guarantee it at all because a lot of what goes on in the world is outside their control. So if there is an oil crisis, as there has been, it's not necessarily down to the UK having done something, although <coughs> at that time perhaps it was, but, um, but it is what happens around you. Or if there is a geopolitical crisis, yes, okay, we're involved in Iraq, but um, uh, we're not directly in control of the, of the world environment. So any politician who tells you anything with certainty, you need to look at them and say, <coughs> They're mm -hmm. not politicians we deserve. We mm -hmm. should actually have somebody better who, who is more nuanced. And, and companies know that. I mean, again, having worked in the private sector a lot, you, you, you live with this uncertainty. Uh, you do scenario planning. You, you just you know, try and see what parameters you can survive within. And you always work on a, something that we used to call when I worked in the oil sector, the catastrophe scenario. And the catastrophe scenario is something which is outside your control and then suddenly it happens, like in the case of an oil company, the oil price collapsing. And but you have contingency plans. Those contingency plans are, we shut down and we go somewhere else. We stop, close the oil fields. Uh, it is actually what a number of firms right now are doing, sitting on their hands. I mean, it's interesting, the Nissan thing, as I was saying, but they're saying, we actually are, have looked at the scenarios, and one of them is really so worrying that we're not prepared to take the risk on 
on, on doing anything for the time being. And, and, and what they do want is, is more certainty. So whether the economists cannot give them that because so much of what is going to happen on the Brexit side depends on game theory. What will the Europeans do? do will they like us? Is Theresa May going to irritate them? Uh, or are we going to have a more conciliatory thing? Is it going to be Boris Johnson or someone else? Um, who, who has any to deal with it, and how do they view the UK? Actually, rather badly right now. Uh, that could all change, just like that, uh, through maybe one act. I don't know, quite know which one. So, so, so I'm sorry to have to say that if you're offering certainty to anyone, then you're just lying. <laughs> <laughs> do I have time to do one more round of questions? Is that okay? Yeah? Yeah. My God, please stop putting <laughs> your hands up. <laughs> There's more of them all the time. So we have a gentleman here, and then in the orange jumper here, Bright orange jumper there. Whether this was an economic or a political decision. Okay. Um, one more question. Uh, this lady here in the blue jacket, a blue top, sorry. <laughs> okay. Yes, please. Okay, great question on um, mental health. So if I can provide um, an, a historical analogy, and that's with the British Industrial Revolution, something I mentioned briefly somewhere in my talk. Um, British Industrial Revolution, commonly seen as the start of sustained modern economic growth, led to the development of urban industrial cities like Manchester, um, uh, Sheffield, um, Glasgow, Birmingham, um, and brought great wealth and helped to um, lay the foundations for the modern day. But at the same time, it had really adverse consequences for the health of people, the physical health of people living, um, living during that industrial revolution. So um, economic historians have just recently started to measure um, the best they can, heights of people living at the time, and you find, for example, that people are getting shorter generation on generation because of the types of horrible disease environments in these rapidly expanding, squalid cities. And that 
problem of lack of sanitation, public health of diseases quickly spreading. Eventually, the state in the latter half of the 19th century stepped in and tried to do something. And I do see today's mental health problems as, in a sense, similar to that and something that we're still waiting for the state to do more. Can I also say something on religion as well? Yes, there's, a, there's a very interesting um, book coming out um, next month. I've already reviewed it for Times Higher Education. It's by Joel Mokyer, M-O-K-Y-R. It's called A Culture of Growth. And he touches a, a great deal, actually, on religion and its links with the rise of the West. Um, if I can offer something of my own, and that is often the rise of the West, the, the way in which Europe came to dominate um, the globe, is attached by, attached by people like Max Weber to the idea of the Protestant work ethic. Um, now, actually, I do think that this could be seen as rooted in the early empowerment of women in the West. So women, young girls, go out to work. They buy their, they buy their freedom by the fact that they can afford to support themselves. They can turn down offers of marriage that their parents are putting for them, go out into the world, work, wait to find someone of their own choosing. And when they find that person, by their mid-20s, they're wanting to settle down and set up their own independent home separate to either of their parents. Now, that development of these small nuclear families in the West, what it did was to put a lot of emphasis on individualism, because for you to do well in life, you couldn't just fall back on your parents setting up a good match for you, providing a dowry and other things. You had to strive yourself. You had to work hard. You had to gain skills. You had to be entrepreneurial. You had to be dynamic. And so that early development of women's empowerment in the West do, I do think in some ways provided the sparks for um, Western capitalism. Okay. <coughs> Would you want to take a question of, uh, of the four? So we had right. them. Oh, okay. You um, wish to yes, yes. Yeah. Um, about the mental uh, health of people, I think, with, with whatever we've seen. I think it's quite interesting, but I, I read this, uh, this article which said that this private clinic in the city is now inundated with, with people, with, with, with men who work in the city who are suffering mental problems and anxiety because of Brexit. And I thought that was quite an interesting, <laughs> an interesting development, which I hadn't <laughs> thought about. And I cut it out. And I thought it was the funniest thing I've read. But actually, You're there a are some. Very weird sense of humor. <laughs> but there are some, um, some, some really uh, uh, serious issues, too, about you know, not the bankers, but everybody else. Everyone talks about the automation that we talked about before, but also the gig economy, sharing economy. People are self employed, doing various things. <laughs> Uh, in, in reality, if you look at, at, at their incomes and their, their quality of life, it, it is actually pretty appalling. Because, uh, and of course, you probably know that, that uh, Uber lost a case today uh, where actually the people who work for them have to be treated as employees so they can get some benefits and so on. Because, of course, we know about the hours and everything else. Uh, and, uh, and we can't just say, oh, they're all foreigners who are working on this, because that's a pretty uh, awful <coughs> way of, of thinking about it. Uh, but the worst thing for me is to look at the data. I'm afraid what economists do is they, 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 they usually at least look at the facts. Uh, of course, they, uh, anyway, the facts. Um, and, and the self-employed have seen a reduction in the, in the real uh, incomes since uh, the end of the crisis of 22% since 2009. 22% reduction in real disposable incomes, in real incomes. Which is extraordinary when the rest of the economy actually saw a bit of, you know, most of them saw, saw a decline, but nothing like as much. So we created this new, so loads and loads of people are employed in that way. So the numbers of, employee, of em people in employment has been going up, but actually a huge percentage of people in employment have had worse living standards than they did 
all those years ago, and they worked terribly long hours. And the mental, I mean, whatever is created there, particularly, of course, in terms of their, their families too. Just one uh, very quick thing, if I may, on, on gender. So you heard from Victoria that we've done various uh, things together. Uh, and I mean, one of the things that, that affects what women do on the economics front is the very, very early decisions that they made at school. So if you don't do maths, you tend perhaps not to do all sorts of other uh, things that might actually be very useful. And uh, somebody who used to run an Oxford college here, uh, no, oh God, an Oxford college in Oxford, <laughs> uh, uh, Francis Cairncross is really what I meant to say. Um, it's late in the evening. Um, uh, Francis Cairncross said, when she worked for The Economist, produced this wonderful report where she found that the greatest correlation uh, between your earnings uh, in life and, and what you studied was A-level economics. And if women only knew that uh, and, and, and were told this, I think things would be very, very different, certainly in the economics profession, and maybe in the decisions made, uh, made by, by the people who rise to the top. Do you want to, to answer any question of those that we had? Um, um, uh, well, I, I mean, I'll just say you know, one line or two on university fees. Yes, um, I don't think education should be left to market forces. I think there should be some areas, you know, sort of society that should be of market forces, because one thing that the market does particularly well is segment. Um, the customer base. Okay? So I make so much, so my child should go to this particular school. You know, Hajun's child, Hajun makes this much. That, so that that social capital once again, you know, that you accumulate because you know, rich man and poor woman's sort of you know child go to the same school. I mean, then we lose out on that opportunity. So that's just one reason. There are many others why I think you know I mean, this should be off. Mm. Right, that leaves uh, Donald Trump. Yes, um, you have the easy one. Yeah, I cannot make up my mind between two hypotheses I have. First, he has, uh, sorry, that he is his own worst enemy. And second, he's probably an agent of the Democratic Party. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't think he'll make it because he's really screwed it up. But yes, I mean, that, that you're right. I mean, but that he became the president. What will happen is anyone's guess. <laughs> well, and that's a wonderful moment moments. to finish on, I think. Um, I know there were a lot of hands still up, but we are sort of running out of time. And I think our speakers are probably going to be around for a little while to, to so I'd like to ask you all to thank them before we go. <laughs>